Hello, everyone, and welcome to our fourth episode of Over My Dead Pod. My name is Kate Carter. I'm Kylie Colwell. And I'm Holly Spear. And this week, we're actually just going to jump right into the story. Um, So I'm going to begin. Sherry Hall, age 20, laid naked on the floor. Her blood was pooling near her matted hair. Brain matter was seeping from her skull, and it was spackling on the carpet. She was surrounded by her ripped clothes. Gradually, her moans and her deep labored breathing diminished until her body was drained of life. Sometime around 9 p.m. on the evening of January 18, 1981, Sherry had been nearing the end of her night shift at the Transamerica office building in Central Oregon in a town called Kaiser. For those that don't know, Transamerica is an insurance company. Sherry was preparing to leave when she was grabbed by a man who had somehow managed to enter the key-coded building. This handsome man, maybe six feet tall, had thick, curly brown hair and eyes to match. He was wearing jeans and a leather jacket. Grabbing Sherry with one hand and holding a gun in another, the man walked Sherry down a hallway. While walking, the pair saw another woman in the office building, office cleaner and 20-year-old Lisa Garcia. Because the man was holding a weapon, he was able to take both women into a back room and ordered them on the floor. The man began sexually assaulting both women, and when he was done, he shot both of them in the back of the head, point blank. This, as we later would find out, was generally in keeping with the attacker's M.O., a sexual attack followed by a 32 caliber bullet to the back of the skull. Sherry immediately died of her gunshot wound, but Lisa, the office cleaner, survived by faking her death while lying motionless on the floor with a bullet lodged in the back of her skull. As soon as her attacker left, Lisa called the police. While en route, a police officer noticed a thickly built man fitting the assailant's description standing at an intersection, but this intersection was over a mile away from the attack site, so it would have taken one hell of an athlete to make it that far on foot so quickly, so the police officer drove on. For weeks after the brutal attack, Lisa worked with detectives to crack the case, including providing details for sketches. Little did she know that this attack and the killing of Sherry was just one of many alleged carried out by the same man. He was helping to track down one of the most notorious serial murders in U.S. history, the I-5 killer. Nicknamed the I-5 killer, the man had made a trail of brutality and death up and down the left corner of America. He killed in California, Oregon, and Washington state. His love of violence started in the mid-1970s, and by the time he had gotten to Sherry and Lisa, he had accumulated a sizable list of death. But this was just the beginning. So based on DNA evidence and the advancing crime lab techniques, the I-5 killer's body count had climbed throughout the years. Cold case detectives have conservatively put the death toll past a dozen, but journalists and armchair detectives, <clears throat> us, believe that he was responsible for as many as 30 murders. That doesn't even include the string of more than 100 other crimes, including robberies and rapes. The I-5 killer's victims were mostly from the same subset, petite Caucasian women in their teens or 20s. And sometimes these women had declined the killer's sexual advances, and the killing seemed to always be of retribution. Other times, the killer didn't know his victim at all, and he had his way with them and then took their lives away because he could. And then there's a small detail. 
which Lisa shared with detectives, and it kept surfacing again and again across the I-5 killer's crimes. The killer appeared to wear what seemed to be a strip of athletic tape over the bridge of his nose in the manner of a football player. This stood to reason, because not long before turning into one of America's most depraved and remorseless serial killers, Randall Woodfield had been drafted by the one and only the Green Bay Packers. In the fall of 1973, Randall Woodfield was playing for the Portland State Vikings football team as a leading receiver. One day, an NFL scout came to see Randall, having been impressed by his hands and athleticism. But when asking the coach about Randall, the coach wavered. And though he spoke positively about the football player, he did state that Randall didn't like being hit. Not by the safety, not by the linebacker, not by anyone. To coaches, Randall's personality was just that, soft and a dislike of confrontation. And maybe more than any other player on the team, Randall seemed to seek out the football staff for companionship. In a quote from the head coach at the time, Ron Stratton, he stated, he was always bopping by our offices before heading into class. It's like he just wanted to hang out with us. Quoted by his teammates, Randall didn't really fit in. He was always grooming himself, and that even carried over to the way he played. He seemed like he was more interested in looking cute out there on the field than getting the job done. And as true as that might have been, the pride that Randall took in his appearance was justified. He was a six foot tall, barely any body fat, had well-defined muscles, and a smile framed by what is now called a porn mustache. So even (laughs) funny enough, though, Randall may have been known at the college that he went to mostly for his devotion to the Campus Crusades for Christ and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, where he was a leader. Going back to the NFL scouting, armed with many resources at the time, a modern-day pro football team like the Green Bay Packers would have conducted a detailed background search on Randall, and the red flags would have been there. In particular, the picturesque Oregon mid-coast town of Otter Rock, where Randall grew up. Randall lived in a middle-class home where his father was a manager for a local phone company and his mother was a homemaker. The Woodfield family had three children. One was Randall and the other two were his older sisters. The family was well-known in the community and well-respected. Outwardly, Randall appeared to be normal and that began to change once he was in high school. One day he was caught standing on a bridge exposing himself to females. His parents sent him to a therapist who by all accounts, ended up not being concerned about a teenager's sexual exploration. According to law officials, the high school coaches knew about the flashing situation, but by wanting to protect their star player, talked it up to a teenager's phase and time-lapse and impulse control. And when Randall turned 18 years old, his entire juvenile record was expunged. During a year of being a transfer student at Treasure Valley Oregon Community College, while playing football, Randall was arrested for allegedly ransacking an ex-girlfriend's home. He was found not guilty in a jury trial because of lack of evidence. Later, while attending Portland State, he was arrested on multiple occasions for indecent exposure, and he was convicted twice. Head coach Stratton, at the time, did not know of any of Randall's arrests until years later. But as it was, having done little in the way of intel, the Green Bay Packers remained interested in Randall, and in the 17th round, they picked him. Randall was offered a one-year contract, and it put a lot of pressure on himself to make it big. Per the Packers' request, Randall spent the next months in shape and working on the sport. 
in June of 1974, the team sent Randall a first-class ticket and instructions for a limo pickup that would take him to the team's training camp in De Pere, Wisconsin. But Randall declined, and he opted to drive himself from Oregon. Though all seemed to be going well in Randall's favor, the Packers thought otherwise and ended up releasing him from the team on August 19, 1974, right before the season opener. Though the Packers never commented on why Randall was dropped, the police later speculated that the team had their reasons. But get this, instead of returning home from Oregon, Randall decided to stay in Wisconsin. He settled an hour and a half west in Oshkosh for a semi-pro Manitowoc chief football team. As a side note, Manitowoc is also the setting for the 2015 Netflix documentary of Making a Murderer. So teammates recalled Randall as a ladies' man and a bit strange. A former roommate said that Randall had once brought home a trinket from a local store. And when asked how much it cost, Randall said it wasn't for sale, so he stole it. After Randall's first season was over with the Manitowoc Chiefs, he was dropped from the team. No reason was ever given publicly, but there were talks about how the team had off-field concerns about the player. But while there were no arrest records for Randall in the state of Wisconsin, a detective would later learn that he had been involved in at least 10 cases of indecent exposure across the state. With being dropped from another team, Randall's ambitions of being a pro player killed off and he drove back to the West Coast. This is when the rampage started. It took some time before the I-5 killer graduated to murder, but the buildup was ready. Back in Portland, Randall drifted to the margins. He decided to not return to school, and though he was only three semesters from graduating. Instead, he bounced job from job, residence to residence, girlfriend to girlfriend. At only 24 years old at the time, he was moving backwards in life. Occasionally, Randall would take a trip to his old stopping grounds at Portland State to work out with his old team. The former head coach, Stratton, was no longer there and had been replaced by Mouse Davis. Um, For those that don't know, Mouse Davis is a well-known football coach. Coach Davis recalls that Randall was a good athlete, but once he had been warned by another coach to not get too close to that guy, he strained, and there ceased the relationship. In early 1975, Portland police were puzzled by a series of attacks on women. They had been carried out by a man described as athletically built and handsome, armed with a knife. After demanding sexual activities, the attacker would take the women's personal items and run off. So on March 5th, Detectives decided to set up a sting operation. An undercover female officer walked leisurely through a park and a man wielding a paring knife darted out from behind some bushes and demanded money. Officers emerged and arrested the assailant, who later identified himself as Randall Woodfield. Having been charged with robbery, Randall also gave an extensive interview to police claiming he didn't drink or smoke, he was a committed Christian, and sometimes he just had impulse control issues and sexual problems. Randall Randall also stated that at some point he had taken steroids and maybe that changed his sex drive. Okay, so Random spent a period of time in prison for this arrest and once released, some of his former Portland State teammates threw him a getting out party. But Mm -hmm. fun fact, Randall was over two and a half hours late to this party and people thought that to be a little strange. He also got out just in time to attend his 10-year high school reunion in which other guests state he showed off his muscles the entire time and spoke about the Packers organization and how he used to be a part of it. So once out of prison, Randall still chose to not turn his life around. All of his prior failures hardly seemed to come at the expense of his self-confidence. 
He cruised around Portland in a gold 1974 champagne edition of the Volkswagen Beetle. He was especially fond of sending naked photos of himself to women. In late 1979, Randall was also photographed with his muscles oiled, and he mailed the image to Playgirl for consideration. The following May, he received a letter back from them, stated he had been selected for a potential future publication in the Playgirl's Guy Next Door feature. Randall waited for his photo shoot, and that's when police believe he began to murder as he received no response. On October 11th, 1980, Jerry Ayers, a beautiful 29-year-old, was found raped, stabbed, and bludgeoned to death in her Portland apartment. According to the coroner, Jerry had died from a blunt force trauma and knife wounds to her neck. Randall and Sherry were former high school classmates, and they had reconnected at the 10-year reunion we had just spoke about, and then after that had seen each other socially. Detectives found many letters in Sherry's residence, confirming that the two knew each other. Immediately, Randall was listed as a suspect, but when questioned by homicide detectives, Randall's answers were evasive and deceptive, and he also declined to take a polygraph. A blood test did not link Randall to the crime scene, nor did a semen match found in Sherry's body. But even in a time predating reliable DNA testing, the detectives had no other evidence to go off of. The going off of confidence, the one-man crime picked up its momentum. Seven weeks after Sherry's death, 22-year-old Darcy Fix and 24-year-old Doug Altig were shot to death in an execution double murder with a 32 caliber inside of Doug's Portland home. Once again, Randall had a connection to the murdered woman. She was one of his teammates' exes at Portland State. When Randall was questioned by police, they were unable to find anything further to link him to the murders. On December 9th, 1980, a man wearing a fake beard held up a gas station in Vancouver, Washington. Four nights later, in Eugene, Oregon, and a man wearing a fake beard and athletic tape on his nose raided an ice cream parlor. The next night, a drive-in near Albany, Oregon, was robbed by a bearded man. A week after that in Seattle, a gunman matching the same description held down a 25-year-old waitress inside of a restroom and forced to masturbate him. Sherry Hall and Lisa Garcia were from the Transamerica building, were sexually assaulted four weeks later. Word soon began to spread that there was an I-5 bandit traveling up and down the northern half of Interstate 5, and all of the crimes occurred within two miles of an interstate exit. As the crime spree accelerated, each crime became more twisted and horrific than the last. On February 3rd, 1981, 31-year-old Donna Eckerd and her 14-year-old daughter, Janelle Jarvis, were found dead in their home in Mountain Gate, California. Both women had been shot multiple times in the head. Lab tests later revealed that Janelle had been sodomized as well. Earlier that same day, an eight-year-old waitress was kidnapped and raped after a holdup in Reading. On Valentine's Day in 1981, Candace Wilson told her $18 Julie to be careful when leaving the house. But later that night, Julie was shot and killed at their home in Beaverton, Oregon. Julie had previously known Randall. He was a bouncer at a local bar and had often let Julie in with a fake ID. So he knew her address as well. From one horrible attack to another, the descriptions continued to be similar. An athletic man, a 32 caliber revolver, wearing tape or band-aid over his nose, ducks a woman, commits sexual acts, and then shoots her execution style. Detectives began targeting Randall as their main suspect. Convinced that the ex-football player, who was squeamish, running through the middle of a field, 
had somehow become a horrible murderer. But let's talk about this period. So Randall Woodfield, the I-5 killer, wasn't the only sociopath terrorizing the East Coast at the same time. Ted Bundy's killing spree in the Northwest believed to have begun in 1974, the exact same time as the I-5 killer. The first of Ted's eight victims were either killed in Oregon or Washington state. Roughly concurrent with the I-5 killer and Ted Bundy, Gary Ridgway had begun committing ritualized murders in Seattle, also mostly targeting young women. It would take over 20 years before Gary was caught, and he was immediately known as the Green River Killer. This is a nod to the waterway where his first victims had been found, by the way. Randall's downfall came pretty quickly, and it came without drama or fuss. There was a persistent detective, we love a persistent detective, named Dave Komnick, who led the investigation. While working in the sheriff's office in Marion County, Oregon, this is the same county that the Sherry Hole was killed in and from, Detective Komnick had pegged the right suspect early on. Randall had already been serving a prison sentence for prying on women. He had been acquainted with most of the victims, and he certainly knew his way around I-5. He also matched the physical description provided by most of the witnesses. What's better, though, is that the Marion County detectives put together a pay phone call log that showed Randall using calling cards within a few miles of various murders. What's the irony, though, is that Randall's father worked for the phone company that ended up getting him in. Lisa Garcia, the lady that was the cleaner from the Transamerica building, she was able to pick out Randall from a photo lineup and police began interviewing him on March 5th, 1981. The police searched Randall's residence, which, by the way, he was renting a room from a family in Springfield, Oregon, just a random family. But in the room, they found telling evidence that included the same brand of tape that had been used to bind victims, the 32 caliber casing. Four days later, police charged him with Sherry Hole's murder, Lisa Garcia's attempted murder, and two counts of sodomy. So Randall was given a public defender, and he entered a plea of not guilty. By March 16th, indictments were coming in from all different jurisdictions in Washington State and in Oregon, including multiple counts of murder, rape, sodomy, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery, and possessions of a firearm by an ex-convict. Randall's trial began in the summer of 1981, and the prosecution had plenty of evidence against the I-5 killer. It didn't help that his defense team was also very flimsy, hoping for a case of mistaken identity, and even went as far to say that Lisa Garcia had been influenced by hypnosis. Randall eventually decided to take the stand, which is a no-no, just by the way, you guys. If you're a bad person, don't take the stand. Don't don't talk. Don't talk. (laughs) And when Randall did speak, he spoke softly and portrayed himself as nothing more than an athlete. Funny enough, Randall did at one point admit to owning a 32 caliber pistol, but stated once he found out it was a police violation, he threw the gun into the river. That mm-hmm. being said, Lisa Garcia was ending up being the key witness, and she recalled the horrific night at the office five months earlier. She continued to maintain that the man she faced in the courtroom was the same man who shot her and killed her coworker. The jury took three and a half hours to reach a verdict. 1981, at 31 years old, Randall Woodfield was convicted on all counts. Oregon did not have a death penalty at the time, and the I-5 killer was sentenced to life in prison plus 90 years. So this is a little side note, because I wanted to do my research on this too. Some people are for or against the death penalty. Whatever is your opinion is your opinion. Oregon voters reinstated the death penalty three years after he was convicted. 
In December of 1981, more years were added to Randall's sentence when a jury in Benton County, Oregon, found him guilty of sodomy in a weapons charge tied to another attack in a restaurant bathroom. So then began the discussions between the district attorneys up and down the I-5 corridor. They had a decision to make. They could secure a conviction against Randall, but what would the point be? He was already going to die in prison and the additional trials would drain their offices, you know, because most of them were small offices. It would drain them of time, resources, and would really put the victim's families through excruciating ordeals for no reason. Even in the state of California, where the death penalty was an option, the local prosecutor decided to not pursue the I-5 killer. Still to this day, the I-5 killer's victims have grown. In 2012, detectives in the Portland Police Bureau Cold Case Unit announced that they had matched Randall's DNA to five additional victims. In July of 2005, on account of similar DNA matches, former Portland lieutenant and cold case supervisor interrogated Randall about his connection to even more unsolved crimes. Randall still has confessed to nothing. So ultimately, a handful of jurisdictions decided to not prosecute him for the additional murders, but they did hold a press conference that was viewed nationally to make everything clear. In the unlikely event that Randall Woodfield was ever granted a parole hearing, they would pursue the additional murders. Detective Jim Lawrence from the Portland's Cold Case Unit, who was interviewed the biggest criminals ever, stated that he's still struck most by Randall Woodfield's utter lack of accountability or remorse. Even decades later, with all the evidence we have, Randall still says he did not do anything. To quote Detective Lawrence, if Woodfield were somehow to be paroled tomorrow, he would 100% reoffend. There's no doubt about it. Even to this day, he is a stone cold killer. So Randall is now 71 years old. 41 years after his conviction, he still sits on the Oregon State Penitentiary nestled in Salem, Oregon, which funny enough is barely even a mile from I-5. The Oregon mm-hmm. Department of Corrections has always denied interviews on the ground that it brings notoriety to the inmate. And since he's such a high profile individually already, publicity does not fall within the rehabilitation plan or the correctional plan for him. Randall did join MySpace back in 2006, <laughs> and his profile was as close as he's ever come to talking about his past. It also says a lot about what he identifies. So quote unquote, And just to let you know, Kylie, the profile doesn't exist anymore, so no need to stalk afterwards. This is what his profile said. I spend the remainder of my days in prison because I have committed a murder along with many other crimes. I once tried out for the Green Bay Packers. The only reason I didn't make it is because the skills I had to offer, they didn't need. He just sounds like casebook narcissist. Yep. So authorities have estimated that the total number of killings to this date is at least 44 victims. Right now, he is still the number one deadliest serial killer in American history. And you guys, that is the story of Randall Woodfield, also known as the I-5 killer. Thank you guys for listening. This is Over My Dead Pod, and we will see you next week. 